Hello and welcome to another episode of Emerging Excellence. I am your host, Felicity Fury, founder of We Aspire, and I'm joined by Brett Bassett, CEO of QLeave. How are you, Brett? Hello, hello, Felicity. Hi, oh, well, I'm excited about this topic today. It's going to be very juicy. And the idea was presented to me earlier this year by one of my incredible mentors, Elsa Shepard, who has been the chairman of Powerlink, an incredible, inspiring engineer. And we're sitting down by a pool, actually, in the Gold Coast. And she said to me, OK, you're faced with this scenario. The CFO has of your company has uh, stolen $10,000. You've just found out. They used it to pay for school fees for their kids. And they're about to pay it back, but they um, they were found out before they could get the money back in the account. And she asked me and my husband, Michael, what would you do in this scenario? And it was presented to her at a conference and the options were kind of along the lines of ask them to pay it back and uh, get them to leave the company or go to the police as they've stolen from the company. So, Brett, if you were the CEO and your CFO had just done that, what would you do? No, 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 no. You're not going to throw it to me first. <laughs> you chose this topic. What did you decide? And then I'll tell you what I would do. Well, I did think about it and I really thought, oh, well, it was for their school fees. I feel bad for the person. Oh, I think I would, you know, get them to pay it back and ask them to leave. And Michael actually said the same thing. Should I tell you what Elsa said before you sure. give your answer? Sure. She she uh, she actually passed away early this year, and I really want to dedicate this episode to her. And she she said she was straight down the line. She went, "Nope, they stole from the company. They need to be reported straight to the police." And she was a real had a really hard line attitude to it. What would you say, Brett? Well, I need to caveat my response by saying I used to be a policeman many many years ago. I've spent most of my uh, working career. Um, working in regulatory agencies. Um, in my consulting career, and you, you know where I'm going with this now, Felicity, I've travelled the world dealing and investigating fraud and corruption. Um, and in the public sector world that I work in, that I love working in, there is only one thing to do. The first thing that I would do is I would make sure that we refer it to the police. Uh, I would then uh, make sure that I take steps to mitigate any risk um, and make sure, of course, that procedural fairness is applied throughout every single process. But my gut tells me simply, um, it's obviously a very, very topical thing that we're talking about today, given, you know, the impacts going on in the market across the world, you know, the cost of living uh, focus, et cetera. Um, it's a really sad thing, but I would have to think, seriously think about going down a disciplinary process. I think from my world, from where I've been, that's the right thing to do. Well, the interesting thing when Elsa was telling us this story was that the, the person presenting at the conference asked the audience, what would you do? And she said about half of them would report to the police and half of them would have chosen the option to get them to pay it back. And that really surprised me because I thought, mm. who's right here? Am I right? You know, is Elsa right? You know, she's got decades of experience. She's been an engineer, one of the first female engineers in, in Queensland. Is there a right answer? I guess that kind of leads to this this ethics and 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 moral dilemma of what do you choose? And and when you're a leader, all eyes are on you, and it can be very public. So, what would be your perspective, Brett, around how you make these ethical decisions? Are you surprised by the fifty fifty in the room? No, not at all. I'm not, um, and that's not being pejorative at all. I mean, for me, ethics and integrity are fundamental to every single thing I do every single day, um, and I'm a big believer that. 
the stuff that you do when no one else is around is the stuff that really, really matters. And so, um, you know, the, the way I sort of look at it is um, what is happening outside of people's work life absolutely will impact them in the in the work environment. And we've spoken about this before. But that doesn't necessarily translate, in my view, to giving people to take without actually asking if that makes sense. Stealing is stealing. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're falsifying a timesheet. It doesn't matter um, if you are, um, you know, invoicing somebody for work that you haven't done. It's stealing. It's theft. And I think irrespective of, you know, the, the social norms, it's actually taking something that's not yours. So I'm pretty black and white on this. So interesting because I think there's this, and we talked about this with Elsa, was that there's that the human part, the empathy of, oh, I can understand that that would be really challenging. And it was after she'd spoken to me about it, I thought, yeah, I can totally see that the police option makes it. She definitely changed my perspective on it. And she said, it's not up to, you know, it's not up to me. It's a matter for the police because exactly like you said, Brett, that is stealing. So I think that, yeah, definitely my perspective has been changed. And I think as a leader, you're right, it is those basic daily things around integrity, doing what you say you're going to do. Even the other week you said, I'm going to buy that book, and then you sent me a picture and you bought the book. And, you know, the it's the the daily stuff as well as the big stuff that makes a difference when let, you're let a leader. Me, sorry, sorry, Felicity. Let me give you a real-life example. So recently, and you're going to laugh at this, and I think it's fair to say that I got criticised internally in an organisation that I did this at. Um, I sent an email to my whole organisation, you know, I won't say which organisation, where I, we, st we started talking about what it is to be a public servant. And I was talking about the culture of being in a public service organisation. And we're, we're entrusted with people's, with decisions that we make on a daily basis that impact people's lives. We, you know, in a lot of public service agencies, we are paid by the taxpayer. And so I think that that in itself gives rise to a high level of expectation. And I absolutely subscribe to that, right? But I was talking with this organisation I was working at about red flags where culture is not going right. And what we're in effect talking about here is ethics, which forms part of culture, right? And I said, I could tell that there was a problem with the culture in this organisation because knives and forks that the organisation had supplied were getting stolen. And people laughed at me. And I said, you may laugh. But it's those little red flags, it's the indicia, it's the, the little stuff that if not stopped, if not, you know, um, discussed, actually can give rise to people actually taking a little bit of, of, of uh, self-belief in actually doing things such as, for example, spending 10 or stealing $10,000. So I know that's a strange scenario to talk about, but it's a real life one. And I think as leaders, as people, whether we work in the public service or in the private world or not-for-profit world, every single day, and I know this is what we'll talk about, we're faced with decisions. Do I or don't I do something that may impact from an ethical and integrity or a values or a cultural perspective? What are your thoughts? I've been in a lot of workplaces where, yeah, the forks would just go missing, then it was the spoons, then you're just left with knives, uh, which probably is a terrible analogy for something else about the culture of the workplaces. And, yeah, it's, it reminds me of that saying, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And I find that such a helpful lens to look through and where, you know, whether you're a leader or not is that behaviour. It's a mindset and attitude that leads to, um, to that culture as well. So, yeah, I think it's a great lens to look through. And what do I say about that? 
I feel like it's very important, you know, very important place to look and, and to start. There's the could we, should we, which is one of the other, you know, examples that comes to mm. mind. One of my mentors shared with me recently, which was just because you could do something, should you? And I think in today's world, you know, back at, you know, maybe when I started my career, you build a road, you go, yeah, it goes from here to here. Oh, yeah, we'll think about the environment, rah, rah, rah. But now it's really, okay, what is the community impact? And that social responsibility is taken, I think, a lot more seriously as, you know, as rightly it should be. Have you seen that change over time in your career around, you know, could we, should we, and, and social licences to operate? Do you think it's stronger today than before? Oh, look, I do think it's stronger today than ever before. And I, I think that's for a range of reasons. I think um, you know, the generation, you know, your generation, um, as compared to my generation, um, are, are much more active in the social sphere and the ESG sphere is a classic example, just in the equity, the equality piece, et cetera. The environmental piece is a really, really important one as well, right? So I think uh, the answer is yes, I absolutely think it's more prevalent than ever before. Social media, I think, is another great example of reason as to why this is happening. People feel, and they do, they talk more often about the things that they do or don't like about companies, about brands, about organisations. And the ability to actually change or impact an organisation that is either providing a service or that is providing um, employment or something along those lines using social media, I think is more prevalent and evident than ever before. There are positives and negatives in that, of course. But I think, yeah, um, you know, this social licence piece is, is is very, very evident. I mean, if we look at mining as a classic example, you know, the should we, could we? Do we create a new mine? Yes. Should we? Yes. It's good for the environment. Sorry, may not be good for the environment. Recant that. Might be good for the for the for the uh, economics of an area, etc. But then it's that should we piece with the environmental considerations, right? So, I think this is something that organisations have to deal with every single day. Do you think leaders should be vocal about it? And here's an example. I was working at a design consultancy and it was around the time of um, the yes-no vote on gay marriage and the company hadn't publicly said what their position was. And I thought, is it really the company's place to say? And some of the staff were uh, not so kind to the CEO of the company saying he should be talking about it. And I think I my view was, Oh, that's a pretty big ask for the leader of a company that's outside their scope probably as a you know design consultancy and engineering. Do they need to be commenting on on social issues? What's your thoughts, Brett? So once again, with my public sector hat on, I think it's difficult for me as a senior public servant in the organisation or in organisations that I've worked in to actually have a view. Um, you know, public servants such as myself need to be apolitical at all times, and so. I think given that view, in some instances, very, very difficult for me to make a public comment about something. Of course, being a public servant from an ethical perspective, an integrity perspective, and values perspective, we want to make sure that our external views are not impacting or challenging or changing the views of the government of the day that we're there to support. And a Director General, Mike Kaiser, spoke just this week or last week it was about, we're not just here to support the government of the day, but to deliver for, and I'll paraphrase what the Director General said, for the people of Queensland. And so I think it's a really fine line as a public servant to make sure that your external and personal views don't come and impact your work views. And in fact, if that does happen, then there's conflicts of interest, there's perceived biases, all these type of things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. So 
my long answer to your question is, in the public service, I absolutely keep my private views separately to my um, work views, and I certainly would not advocate or make any comments from a, a, a from a private perspective in the work environment. Might be a bit different in the commercial world, though. One of the roles I had, I was a design manager working on a large infrastructure project, and I was representing the people that were, you know, had the funds to build the infrastructure, and part of that role was negotiating between the government, the contractor and the designer. And I've been in all of those roles myself personally, so I could really see their perspective and their view around solving particular challenges. I'm deliberately not mentioning exactly what project and what it was. And it was tricky for me because I thought, okay, well, what's my job here? I'm representing this organisation and this is the interest of that organisation. So that's what I need to push forward and negotiate with all of the different parties. And it was it was tricky because I'd seen all those perspectives before. Um, and then, you know, there was also, I live in this community where we're building this piece of infrastructure. How do I make it great for the community as well? So I think, yeah, you're right. You've got to put the hat on in whatever role you're in in that situation um, that, you know, that you are in at the time. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I, you know, I've done some consulting work. I did consulting for about nine years in total. And, and one of the things that my clients used to like about me is if I couldn't do something, I was able to say no, and they respected that, right? And so I think, you know, from the ethics perspective as well, it's not dissimilar to what you say. You know, you've always got to be focused on what the client wants, but can you do it? Should you do it? Will you do it are the three key things, right? The mm, so will you do it? That's an interesting one. <laughs> Great questions to ask because I think there's a lot of things that we definitely can do and could do, but the should do, I think, is the, is the real kicker of, okay, is this really, you know, thinking about the systemic view and, this, you know, leaders do operate in a system. You're not just operating on one thing at one point in time. All of those different aspects need to be considered as well. How oh, would you? That's yeah. right. So, sorry, I was going to say, um, yeah, and one of the things that I sort of subscribe to all the time is, and we've spoken about this on different episodes before, the decisions we make today impact, impact those who are running or sitting in the chairs in the organisation in the future. Right? So when, when I think about, you know, those type of conversations that we're having today, it's always what is the impact if I do this? And that helps with the should I do this piece, right? So, you know, the should piece is really that's where the ethical piece, I think, might come into it. So I'm always a big believer, what is the impact in the future? Mm, that was kind of leading into the question I was, I was going to ask, which is how do you how do you develop it in yourself and in emerging leaders? Because I think a lot of the ethical situations are sometimes you have to be in it to kind of figure out how you're going to navigate it. Is there a way to train and develop people, you know, is it in those situations? Because I think it, it can be really difficult unless you're really living it. Yeah, look, I think oh, for me it's it's part of the way you're brought up. It's part of your environment externally. Um, and I also think it's it's part of the intrinsic makeup of every single one of us, right? So, um, you know, um, yeah, I've lived and breathed this literally for a long period of time in my different public service careers, but one big job in particular um, so how do you how do you grow it? I think the living and breathing piece. You, you've got to be exposed to ethical dilemmas, and you've got to fumble your way through it. I mean, once again, in the public service, we've got a fantastic framework by which we can help 
work through these ethical dilemmas, right? So we've got codes of conduct, we've got decision-making matrices, we've got, um, you know, conflict of interest processes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I think the best way that I've experienced to, to, to work through this is actually the practical lived experience. You'll make mistakes, identify those mistakes, and then fix them next time. So, you know, I think at a base level, I think there is nothing better than being hit with a, an ethical question, stopping, getting feedback, getting input, getting advice from different people, and then asking yourselves really a really simple question. This is what I do on a daily basis. How would this look in some type of media article or how would this look um, to somebody sitting in a courtroom or something along those lines, right? Um, and importantly, can I face my family at home? They're the really important things that I look at which help me make those decisions on a daily basis. Mm. The courier mail test was drilled into me when I worked at Brisbane City Council and I think it's a really, really good one and kind of comes down to that, you know, the optics part is, you know, you could be doing the right thing and but it, there might be something there that makes it appear or, you know, the perception of that reality might be different with different lenses applied. And I think the courier mail test is a great one to ask if this is on the front page, you know, would I be okay with that? And is that something you think about as well, Brett, with in terms of the optics and, and that perception of different kinds of people when you're making those ethical decisions? I think the really important there, there is, and you sort of made mention of it in the lead into that question, was this perception piece. Somebody's perception is their reality, and that's okay. And, and I think what I've seen over my period of, of, of time is that sometimes we forget to turn our mind to, well, why is it that person's reality? Um, you know, and I've been in, in some roles where people's realities were really quite different to mine because of the emotional attachment to, you know, the organisation that I might have been involved with at the time or the, the way that the organisation was making decisions that might have positively or negatively impacted them. And so I think, you know, the, the, the media test, um, the always saying, well, why is somebody else looking at this will actually help you, in my experience, actually make sure that you're covering off on all the questions and the decisions that you need to make. So, you know, there's the old adage where there's smoke, there's fire. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do think, you know, the adage that somebody's perception is their reality is a really important even evener, not a very good word, equaliser in respect of helping make these decisions. Yeah, that's good. I, yeah, again, council was a great learning ground and often I would be, uh, as a project manager of, of, of road projects, et cetera, be asked, you know, well, the councillor has to kind of justify this to the community. How would you justify this design? How would you justify these things? And then from an engineering perspective, it can be really obvious, but then from a community perspective, it might not quite make sense. And there was actually one project where... Uh, not to get too technical, but the road hierarchy said it was a you know local connector road, which meant it should have a certain speed limit, shouldn't have speed calming devices, and a whole bunch of things like that. And we actually worked with the community to change that. You know, it was almost like changing the standard, but using that engineering judgment to go well. What's going to be in the interest of the community of the flora and fauna and the environment that we're working in? And it was amazing to see. I was super impressed with council being open to changing something so rigid as a road hierarchy, which the engineer in me is like cringing about. But it really was the right solution for the community and the outcome. So I, that was probably a good 
could we, should we, well, no, we shouldn't. Um, how's it going to work best for everyone? But I think what I took away from that story there, Felicity, is what is what you did is you actually sought advice or input from others who had a view, right? And I think, you know, when you've got an ethical dilemma, um, I think it's absolutely okay and appropriate to say, look, I don't know what to do here. What's your view? What am I missing? What are the risks? Um, how will this be perceived? All of those things. And I think, you know, if if you ask those questions, you're going to have more data so that you can actually get a more informed decision when as the leader, you have to actually be the one that puts their hand on the dotted, you know, the signature on the dotted line or says, yes, I'm going to make this decision. But I also think that, you know, when you've made a decision, if you get it wrong and put your hand up if you've never made a decision that's wrong, I'm keeping my hands right down low. <laughs> that's how you actually learn from these decisions, right? You, you've got to, we've spoken about reflection and all that type of stuff in other podcasts. So if you ask questions, I think you're going to be more informed. And where I've seen it go wrong is when people haven't asked questions mm. or they've sought advice, but then they haven't followed the advice. And so, I think when you have a bias as well, where you've already made up your mind and you're not open to hearing it that can be a trap too because you've already biased your decision of okay well how do I just get advice and get something you know in this particular outcome we had an example uh where I was you know working on an options analysis for a particular building and we worked through the analysis we did this full multi-criteria analysis had multiple different types of engineering disciplines involved presented it to the to one representative of the client and he said to us, oh, can you make it say option three, not option two? And it was so, I was, I was, I paused for quite some time because I thought, is he actually asking this? And it turned out that he was on a contract from the organisation he worked for and he wanted to get his contract renewed. So actually that option was better for his contract to be renewed, which was wild and going, wow, okay, that was actually his driver behind that. And I, you know, of course said, no, I can't change that. This is what you've paid us to do. This is the option. And it was, I was, you know, shocked that someone would actually ask that when they're spending lots of money trying to find out an answer. Yeah, when I was in the consulting world, I used to have, you know, a couple of clients that tried to get me to say stuff, particularly in respect of fact findings, you know, for fraud or corruption or something along those lines. Um, and and they, I stopped them being my clients. I literally said, I'm not going to work with you anymore. Mm. And it's that values alignment piece that we've spoken about before as well, right? I mean, you know, the ethics and the values and the integrity piece all have to line up so that you know where you sit in the in the hierarchy of an organisation. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the things I love about the public service is we've got really clear guidance about what it is to be a good public servant. We've got values that support that. As I said, we've got all these integrity and ethics frameworks that really, really help us make these decisions every day. And some people might say, oh, gee, that's a whole lot of bureaucratic, you know what? But you know what? When you've got them, and you use them, they actually help you make the right decisions. And I think, you know, there are some people that I've worked with over my period of time that haven't had those values alignments. And I think it's okay for us to realise that when you have those values misalignment, you need to go and work somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely agree. Whether it's, yeah, there's a whole bunch of different ethical things, whether it's working on projects or in the culture within an organisation and, yeah, I find that tricky to say, particularly if it's a you know, diversity and inclusion perspective, um, there's biases and it can be hard as well. You know, like you're saying earlier, the cost of living and people need jobs and it's a reality that we need to, you know, have some, you know, kind of income coming through and form another. So it can be really hard for people to make 
those calls. But I think ultimately that's the right one is finding something that's, you know, well, yeah, going to work for your values um, and you're aligned to. It's hard. Is it hard? Oh, it's easy. It's, you know, what this is the hard stuff of leadership because, you, you know, it's the people piece, right? If, if leadership was easy, we wouldn't be talking about it. You know, and one of the things that, you know, sometimes occurs when there are ethical dilemmas is that people have got a lot going on in their personal life. I remember when I was in the consulting world, I had to go to a, a regional town in Victoria where there was a, a company that I was working, that, that, that had engaged the, the firm I was working with. They calculated that somebody that had worked for them for 30 years had, um, had been misappropriating cash and be stealing cash. I worked out with the, with the team I was working with that over 30 years, this person had taken over a million dollars in cash. Now, this person also happened to be married to the local sergeant of the police. And so, um, you know, there was a lot going on in this person's life. She had a gambling problem. And so, you know, every single reason, people make, make do things for a reason, right? We don't necessarily need to understand them. We need to acknowledge them. Um, but you know, when there's an ethical conundrum, sometimes it's for a really, really important reason in that person's life, whether it's you who have the ethical conundrum or somebody in your team. So I think it's something we've always got to keep in the back of our mind. Why is this happening for this person at this time? Mm, I like how you frame that. Is uh, important thing I think to remember too when you're leading people is you can you can like the person, but you might not like their behaviour. And if you can separate those two things, I found that to be really powerful because you can still have that you know human to human connection but it's more around the behavior the process the actions that hasn't been working and can be a helpful diffuser I think in a lot of situations where you're talking about a behavior and it's not so personal as well is that something that you've used before as well Brett? Yeah I, I often use the you know I, earlier in the, in the conversation for this and I just sort of made mention to it then in the, in the last response you, you made mention of, and I'll paraphrase here, you can understand why somebody does something. Mm. I tend not to use the word understand. What I do is I usually say I acknowledge what you've done. And the reason that I do that is it segments for me at least the emotional attachment away from it. So that um, because if I look at the other person, if I use the word understand, that then potentially gives them a view that I'm going to be softer in my mm. leadership response, if that makes sense. And so I quite often, you know, when I have to have some conversations, whether they're hard conversations or, you know, ethical type conversations, I say, I acknowledge. And and so that's just a tip or a trick that, that I use to, to really keep me seg segmented. Um, I do think, you know, that the external factors that might impact somebody's behaviour, for lack of a better word, um, may, may help in respect of what, disciplinary actions or mitigation steps you know you need to take moving forward but i do think that it's important to be able to separate that reasoning behind the actual activity if that makes sense mm, definitely and i'm noticing as you're sharing that one thing that i know i do is i'm such a people pleaser i just want to fit in i want people to like me i want to have friends and you know, in some ways that can be really helpful but when it comes to these situations it's really tricky and i think knowing yourself of what are those uh you could say not biases but things that you might push you in certain directions where i would know that i go oh i'm so drawn to that i'm so triggered by this 
And I think that's definitely what came up when Elsa was asking that original question of what should you do with the CFO? Because it's just that, oh, the people, belonging, tribe, connection is such a strong thing for me. And I think probably comes back to some experiences I had around friends at school that really triggers it. So for me, that's a really difficult thing that I know I need to be hyper aware of when I'm dealing with these situations. Do you have anything like that for you, Brett? Oh, look, I think um, the answer is yes. And I think uh, I've, I've been lucky in so far as I've always sort of been able to segment the emotion from the pragmatic in these areas. And where I haven't, I've always excused myself from having to make the decision. And I think, you know, um, I think what I always focus on is I focus on empathy. You know, having to be in a hard conversation with somebody, um, you, you don't, in my experience, I, I like them to understand that I'm, I'm there and I'm there to support them and listen, but I'm not there to condone, if that makes sense. Mm. And so I think that's a really, really, really important thing. Um, let me ask you a question, though. So we've been talking a lot about a leader who has to deal with an ethical decision, that type of stuff. What about a leader who is faced with an ethical decision themselves, you know, such as um, uh, a challenging situation in the organisation as a leader? You got any examples of those? A challenging situation as a leader? What do you mean around making a decision or? It's challenged your ethical, oh. your ethical values piece. I think one that comes to mind was they were a, a volunteer and in an organisation and they were also a colleague and they weren't performing. And I, don't know, this, I feel like this fits into the ethical category of should we keep them on the team or not? And can you fire a volunteer? And in the situation, I my go-to thinking was what's going to be best for the organisation? Mm. And I kind of came to that conclusion myself, which was a really cool experience for me because I've definitely drawn upon that thinking a number of times. And I was leading the organisation. I went, look, this is not what's best for the organisation. And actually, from the perspective of use of resources, we really need this key team member, so we've got to let them go. And, you know, I think it still could apply to a, an organisation where people are getting paid. Um, and, yeah, I said to them, look, this is, you know, there's what we need, let's give it a month, didn't work out, and then I, yeah, but let them go. And, you know, we're still friends today, which I think shows how the conversation actually went well. But I think, you know, that mindset of what's best for the organisation has helped me deal with some of those challenges and make the decisions because often I am as a leader acting on, well, yeah, behalf of the organisation and what their mission, vision, goals, et cetera, are. Um, yeah, the one, and I get, and that's the same thing that I applied really when we had the issue on the big infrastructure project. Where, yeah, I didn't like the approach. I personally didn't agree with what was happening. I thought it was a really silly issue, and I couldn't believe we were wasting so much time and like meetings with twenty people to come up with an answer. But here I was, chairing a meeting, twenty people to make this decision. Um, and really it was, okay, well, what's best for the organisation? How can I make the decision most effectively um, using, you know, as a leader, negotiation powers, et cetera? Um, so that's how I, I guess where I think from. What about you, Brett? Have you? Um, sounds like you've got a plethora. You could spend the whole podcast talking about examples of challenges. Oh, oh look, I've had, I've had some wonderful jobs where these have been very, very real for me. Uh, look, uh, uh, there's, there are a number of examples in one job I was at um, where um, there were a lot of external people who were 
saying that the organisation I was leading or me myself had, had done things that were really, in their views, really unethical. Um, and so the, the best way for me to explain it is somebody might send you as the leader of the organisation an email saying you've done this, 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 this and this. Some leaders might just go, okay, well, I disagree with that person and leave it at that. But the way that I demonstrated my ethics and my integrity every single day was every time one of those things came in, and I'm saying there were lots of these things that came in, I would send them to my boss. I would say, you need to know about this, I'll leave it to you to deal with. You need to know about this, I'd leave, I'd leave to, need to you know, let you deal with it. Um, now, of course, nothing came out of those things because I was always straight down the line and, and, and played a very straight bat. But I think, um, what's the adage? Um, a problem shared is a is, is a problem halved or something along those yes. lines and i i really believe that you know if if somebody is saying if you're the leader and somebody's saying that you're acting unethically i think you've got an obligation to take that out of your hands and give it to somebody else mm. now once again in the public service we've got a whole lot of integrity frameworks integrity agencies and people that we can refer ourselves to right and i say that most directly that's absolutely appropriate because we are public servants um but, but the reason I talk about that is it, it's by doing that that you're actually demonstrating on a daily basis that you are trying to be as clean as you can be and be as ethical as you need to be and can be by referring yourself, you know, handing over, over a complaint about you to your boss, for example. Now, that's a really, really hard thing to do, but I'll tell you what, when you do it, it's actually like a, a load off your shoulders. And, and I had to do that in one role many, many, many times because of the role I was holding. You made me think of an example where I did it badly. Should I share that with you? Sure. <laughs> I was thinking about a particular workplace I worked and it was a really bad team culture. Things like people were cheating on their partners on Friday drinks and everyone knew about it. And there was some, I, I guess you would say, um, what was it, uh, sexism happening in the workplace I was the only female on the team besides an admin person and I really stepped over it continuously and I think that's a really tricky one to address but if you look at it from an ethical lens you could go well what's the code of conduct within our organization I didn't escalate it the manager of the team uh, partook in some of the sexist behavior very poor language, derogatory terms to people, both men and women. And I didn't even think, oh, I should raise this. I should keep raising it. And, you know, in hindsight, you know, I should have kept going until that was resolved. But I felt like I, you know, need this job. I just bought my first house. I um, felt like that that was just the way things were because I was very junior in my career and I hadn't been exposed to many workplaces. And the previous workplace also had lots of, um, you know, bullying culture as well. So I really legitimately thought that maybe that's normal and didn't go back to, oh, here's the code of conduct, like you were saying, that we operate in this workplace. So I think that's a situation where I did it poorly. And what would, what would you do, Brett? Like, would you oh, recommend it to, yeah? Listen, that is a really tough thing, right? I mean, people that put their hands up as whistleblowers or whatever the, you know, the colloquial term is, they are really, really brave people. You know, they are extremely brave because to put your hand up or your head above the parapet, um, you know, in some organisations, in some cultures, you know, within organisations, you are the one that's going to be different to everybody else. Um, look, I, I I used to run a, I ran a 24-hour 
365 day whistle, global whistleblower program um, when I was in a, a large consulting firm. Um, and we had people coming to us all the time for exactly what you're talking about, the sexist, misogynistic behaviour, whole range of things like that, right? Um, and the one thing that people kept saying is, I don't want to tell you my name because I'm worried. Mm. Now, you know, in the public service, we've got a really strong uh, whistleblower protection regime, et cetera, et cetera. People are still worried about that, and I absolutely acknowledge that. But at the same time, my view is pretty simple. If you're working in an organisation where you don't feel safe in putting your hand up, is it the right organisation for you? Mm. Now, easy to say that when, as you said, you've got a, it's your first house, you've got a mortgage and all this, right? But I think all I could do as a leader is say, um, a leader's job is to make people feel safe. If they don't feel safe, ask them why and try and help them. A leader's job has to be to develop a culture that is letting people say there has to be something wrong here. And the most important I think a leader can do is walk the walk and talk the talk. So if a leader walks past the behaviour, everyone else is going to see that it's okay or think that it's okay. A leader has to stop and say this is not okay and be overt about it. And that's where I think I got stuck was the leader was, you know, he he wasn't stopping it. I mean, he was adding to it and that certainly felt like it was acceptable. So it's mm. that, you know, classic safety saying the standard you walk past is a standard that you accept. Mm. If no one's stopping to say, hey, hang on a second. And I think it can be really tricky when you are in a minority group um, to stand up to things. And, you know, I've certainly had the view of, oh, you're just talking about the women's stuff again. You know, it can actually, I felt like I had to, you know, really fit in with the team to get my work done. So that made it quite challenging. So you didn't want to upset them or, or you know, I guess piss them off because mm. to do a good job, you had to be, you know, friendly. So it was, yeah, such a tricky situation. I don't work there anymore, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I, I had a similar situation where I was the the, the CEO of an organisation where as part of a, a survey, um, somebody made one of the most misogynistic comments anonymously, of course, you know, the keyboard warrior type thing. Um, and I, I remember my chief HR officer at the time, who's just a brilliant person, she said, we've got to deal with this. I said, I absolutely agree with that. So what we did is at the next town hall, I made a pretty direct comment. Now, it was a little bit too direct, I think, but at the same time, it set the tone. I said, now, somebody's made this comment, and I played the comment back. And I said, I don't know who you are, I don't know where you are, but we will find you and we will not stop until we find you and you will no longer be in this organisation. Now, we didn't find the person, right, but we did try very, very hard. Um, but what it did is it set the tone that that type of behaviour wasn't going to be tolerated. It didn't stop it, but then what it did give is it gave people a little bit of comfort that at least the leader and the leadership team are not going to stand by and accept this. That's great. Yeah, I can imagine that it would have, yeah, it's saying, hey, stop here. This is not okay. And mm. actually create safety. I think when the leader actually takes charge and says something like that, people know that, okay, they're serious and it's definitely setting a tone for the rest mm. of the organisation. Yeah. And it's tricky. We, we've got to keep setting the tone every single day. And we'll get it wrong some days. There are days when I don't do well. You know, that's just part and parcel of always reflecting and being better as a leader, right? Absolutely. It's been a juicy topic, Brett. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Walk the walk, talk the talk. Um, acknowledge, don't understand, and work hard every day to give people safety in 
having a different view and challenging what you're saying. Because I think when you have those type of organisations where people are not afraid to have a different view, I think those ethical conundrums may decrease because there's no group think and all that type of stuff. So that's what I would say. What about you? Definitely taking on the could we, should we, will we. Like the we, you know, thinking about the whole organisation, not just an individual, and asking those questions and getting different views in the room and really being open-minded to acknowledge the different views and not being afraid uh, of people not liking me as a leader. So that's what I'm going to take on. So thanks for the conversation, Brett. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Felicity. Good.